The Bible reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 15. Um, In the booklets, it's got the whole chapter. I'm just going to read till verse 21. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Well, in this, uh, our last uh, talk in the series on crossing the aisle, we are looking at the issue of mess. It is messy when you cross the aisle. When you take the bold step of meeting someone who is not like you, uh, you run into all kinds of awkward experiences. You can experience a clash of cultures. I remember when we were in um, Bangladesh uh, on a trip with Tia years ago. The Australians kept going around going like this to people. Yeah, thanks. And we discovered later that's a really offensive thing to do, you know, to, to do that to people in Bangladesh. Don't know exactly what it means. You know, these are the kind of things that happen. I remember one time when we were in the um, hotel and 
and and I was trying to order my dessert in Bangladesh, um, not not in the language, just in English, <laughs> and I and the and the waiter standing there waiting for me to say what dessert I wanted, and I don't know why, but I asked for it in an Indian accent. I can have a banana fritter, please, and it just came out, and I wasn't trying to make a joke. I just had been listening to the accent for so you know for a week and a half, and all these Australians were just holding like their but, you know, and I was not meaning to be offensive. It just sort of came out. And I don't even think the waiter noticed. He just sort of said, okay, thanks. And he just, you know, kept going. But anyway, this is the sort of thing that happens. You, you sort of make these awkward things, you say these awkward things and you, you get embarrassed and, 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 and mess can happen at an interpersonal level. But it also can happen at a church level. You've got this issue. What if you cross the aisle and, and then the people that you meet actually then want to come with you and join your church? How do you treat them? What special training or guidelines do you have to give to people? What if the person comes from another religion? Or what if the person has a brain injury and is often saying things that are inappropriate or offensive and they can't help it? Uh, you know, what do you do then? What if you have an older person who comes into, into your church that has... Um, you know, uh, a strange way of talking or a person from, uh, who, who obviously comes from a different um, understanding of the world to you. Now, you might be going, well, of course we'd be welcoming and inclusive. Of course we would be if we find ourselves in that situation. But, you know, we have to think a bit more sophisticatedly than that. You know, we're not the North Fitzroy Bowls Club, you know, with, with our inclusivity pol policy, you know. As a church, we've got to think, how do we actually include people? What is the process? How do you include God in a way, way that includes people? How do you seek wisdom? How do you love people and God at the same time? The problem exists because it's quite easy to join a church. So we sing that song, um, peop, you know the song, People Get Ready? People get ready. There's a trainer coming. You don't need a ticket. You just get on board. I mean, that is what it is with the church. You can just get on board. And this should be happening because the, the local church should have a wide open door. It should not judge people as they enter in. Uh, as we cross the aisle, we look for new passengers to come on the, on the train trip to Jordan, as the song goes. God shows no partiality, as we've already looked at a couple of weeks ago. He loves everyone, made in his image. You can be a liar, a cheat or a drunk. And you can come on board, hop on the train. We will not judge you. You can be a Muslim, a Hindu, or a Buddhist. You can walk in the door. There's no, no stopping you. We're not, we don't have bodyguards you know, or security guards at the door saying, show us your Christian credentials. You can be mean. You can be nasty. You can be ugly. We're not going to judge. But there's more to consider. The local church also has to be distinct, as we've looked at. Distinctly obedient to our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Distinctly following his vision for the alternative kingdom community, distinctly geared towards others as salt and light. So you don't hop on the train to Jordan and expect to stay the same. Anyone can join, but you don't join and expect not to be challenged. And if you then want to make commitments in the church and, and, and become a member or, or step into leadership then you have to jump over higher bars. We, like last week, uh, we baptised Lucy and she said, you know, do you turn away from Satan and all that is evil? You know, there's a bar she's suddenly jumping over. 
we, are, we say the creed together. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? You know, there's a belief bar that we expect of people. So we're simultaneously inclusive, but also we want to be distinct. We encounter people as we cross the aisle, not like us, and then we are forced to ask theological questions about the culture. When I studied uh, Aboriginal history, that was a one big question for the missionaries. You know, what aspect of this particular Aboriginal culture that I'm ministering with, what aspect of it is fine with the gospel and what aspect of it isn't fine with the gospel? And that is something that Aboriginal Christians still wrestle with today. There is mess involved in crossing the aisle. And in our story from Acts 15, we see this exact phenomenon. The church, which is still very new, still made up of converts mainly from Judaism, predominantly from Judaism, who have believed in Jesus as the, their Jewish Messiah, have started to reach, they've started to reach non-Jews, otherwise known as Gentiles. And this raises uh, a whole lot of questions for them. They're having to think about theological questions. How can a Gentile be part of the covenant community of God? Do they have to follow the law? And, and so suddenly there's major disunity. And they want to avoid a split because the church is very young, it's very new, it's very precious. Jesus has just ascended not, not very long ago and they don't want to mess this whole thing up and have a split early on. So let's work through the passage and I'm just going to work us through the passage, through the verses, and look at what they do to deal with the issue of mess. Okay, so you might want to turn to your passage. So this passage, Acts 15, funnily enough, uh, lands in the right slam in the middle of Acts. Acts has got about 25,000 words, and we're about 12,500 words in. And this is a major meeting of the elders in the church in Jerusalem. The apostles, the Jerusalem congregation, the elders are all getting together. And after this meeting, uh, the Jerusalem church, which is a major important central church, it disappears in the background of the storyline of Acts. So we don't hear about it after this in the book of Acts. And the Apostle Peter as well also isn't talked about in the book of Acts after this point. From chapter 16 onwards, the storyline focuses on the mission of the church going out into the world. So the Jerusalem Council formed because some Jewish Christians from Judea were evangelizing and preaching in Antioch. And in their teaching, they said... You can't be saved by Jesus Christ unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses. And this applies to Gentiles too. So if they want to become Christians, they have to be circumcised, the men. Now, perhaps these were false teachers or the false brothers that Paul talked about in Galatians 2.4. He says, he says there are these false brothers that have secretly been brought in. Perhaps that's, that's who we're talking about here. And Paul and Barnabas, Paul and his ministry partner Barnabas, sharply disagreed with this teaching. And so they were sent to the Jerusalem Council um, to seek advice, to seek wiser teaching from, from the broader church leadership, from the apostles, from the elders. See what they have to say. Ever since the beginning of the church, the church has been set up by Jesus with a leadership framework that involves elders and leaders. And we also we see different categories, apostles and pastors, teachers. And it's based on this biblical premise that says that wise people will seek the advice of other wise people, more wise people. Foolish people don't seek the wisdom of wise people, but wise people seek the wisdom of wise people. So in the church, seek the advice of the, wis the wisdom of the elders. And in every church, there are elders 
and leaders. Now, some churches, some church denominations have an official role as elders, and we don't have that in our church. Anglican churches don't tend to do that. Some occasionally do that, but that's an extra thing. They're sort of acting like Presbyterians at that point, but that's okay. That's their business. Uh, But every church has um, unofficial elders, and you might be able to think of people in this room in that way, people who are older and wiser than you, who've been a Christian for a long time, who live obediently and who you know can think about things spiritually in a, in a biblical way and you can, you can seek the mind of God through them. And we have leaders also in this church, leaders in the church. I'm one of, one of those people. I'm the leader of this church. But there are other leaders who have experience in training, in pastoral care, in Bible teaching, in shepherding Christians. And we should be reminded in this age of individualism that it's a good thing to seek the wisdom of elders and leaders. We constantly question the authority of leaders and elders in Australia, in the West. We mock authority. We mock our prime ministers. We are reluctant to seek the advice of elders. What, what many people want in the church these days is they want their elders and leaders just to affirm with them what they already believe, to tell them, yeah, whatever you think is fine. But this is an immature and shallow approach to uh, Christian discipleship. As Proverbs 15 verse 12 says, mockers resent correction, so they avoid the, the wise. So there are two categories of people in a congregation, in a church. There are those who make huge life decisions and do not seek the advice of wiser and older people. They don't seek the advice of their leaders. And there are those who do. And I know that in this church, probably we have both. I'm sure we do. I'm often astounded at the way some people will go through this big life decision like, I don't know, um, career or housing or relationships. And they do it quietly on their own and they do not seek any wiser counsel. And then suddenly, ta-da! The decision has been made and, and the person goes and does what they want to do. For me, when I'm making a big life decision, I seek the advice of wiser and older people. It's interesting that we often will, will, will seek the advice of psychologists or financial advisors or career counsellors, but we're less likely to seek spiritual advice. It's not that leaders in the church are infallible. It's not that whatever I say or an elder might say is 100% true, but it's the way God works to use people in the community to to help us in our life. So it requires humility to actually seek out wisdom. It's completely countercultural, I would say, but it's a beautiful thing that the church provides. So I surround myself with Christian elders I, I find being a pastor quite intimidating, so I'm often asking other pastors or people who've been pastors for their whole life, how do you do this? So Nick Connie's dad, Peter, I see more than once a month, and we talk about all kinds of different things, and I have a ministry coach, and I also have, through the Arrow Network that I lead in, other pastors that are around Australia that have been doing it much longer than I have. This is what I do to seek wisdom. So I would encourage you to do that. If you don't seek wisdom and the advice of the elders in your church, you're effectively saying that you have your life and your faith all worked out and you don't need any help, which actually is a sign of foolishness. That's what the Bible says. So seek out the wisdom of the elders and the leaders, just like Paul and Barnabas are doing here. 
Part of the context of what Paul and Barnabas are doing is that the church was already um, experiencing persecution at this time. Stephen had been martyred. And so when Stephen was martyred, many of the um, Christians in Jerusalem fled and they started new churches uh, away from Jerusalem in Phoenicia and Samaria. And so Paul and Barnabas were going around traveling to visit these churches and they were on their journey and they were excited to see that Gentiles were becoming Christians and that the Christians in these churches were excited and they, they were glad of what God was doing. So when Paul and Barnabas got to Jerusalem to report back in, in the face of this, this teaching about circumcision and the requirements of the law, they were saying, oh, look at what's happening. Look at what God's doing. So then after the reporting back, the debate begins. Some of the party of the Pharisees that had converted to Jesus stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, the Pharisees were a subgroup of the Jews that were particularly focused on being strict about the law. And they were passionate about obedience and holiness. And this was the same. If you were a Pharisee converted to Jesus, you kind of kept that same mode of, of life. And they demanded that the Gentile converts should be treated very much like the converts from paganism to Judaism. When you were, were admitted to the community of Israel from paganism, the law of Moses required that men should be circumcised and should undertake to keep the law. And we should not be cynical at the Pharisee Christians' claim here. I think what they're doing is honourable because what they're, what they're saying is, we want to respect God's law. This has been kept for 1,500 years. We have had Jesus the Messiah, but we don't want to mess with the law. We want to be obedient. So it's coming from a good place and they're wanting to welcome the Gentiles in. They're not saying the Gentiles can't join us. They're just wanting to be faithful to God. Anyway, many people speak. Then Peter stands up and speaks and everyone was listening. Peter was one of the most respected Christian leaders alive, if not the most, because Jesus had anointed him to lead the church. Peter had been away from the Jerusalem church for a while now because He'd escaped from Herod Agrippa's prison and so this meant while he was away, James, the brother of Jesus, had stepped in to be the, the leader of the church. Nevertheless, Peter still carried this authority. This is Peter who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who saw the, um, the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Peter talked about his experience with the Gentile convert Cornelius. We looked at this in our second week when we discussed the issue of how God does not show partiality, does not show favouritism. Peter explained that, that what happened then, through what happened then, God revealed that he has a heart for Gentile people, that he makes no distinctions between Gentiles and Jews. The Holy Spirit came to Cornelius, a Gentile, and he was converted. He had given his spirit to any Gentiles that put their faith in Jesus. Peter pointed out that God poured his spirit on the Jews who put their faith in Jesus on the day of Pentecost. He gave them forgiveness of sins. He cleansed their hearts by faith. In other words, God gave forgiveness and cleansing by faith, but not by faith plus something else. So to expect the Gentiles to have salvation by faith plus something else, Peter says, is to tempt God. In other words, to tempt God's wrath. The last time Peter used the phrase to tempt God was when he was talking to Ananias and Sapphira. And you know what happened to them? They went dead. So Peter said to demand circumcision of the Gentiles would be like putting a yoke on the uh, 
on their necks that no Jewish Christian had to endure because it would be salvation by faith plus circumcision. So in verse 11, he reminded them, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. When we cross the aisle to meet with people that are not like us and we feel ourselves becoming judgmental, that's a really good thing to do, is to go, we are all on the same level with God. We are all made in his image and we are all sinners needing salvation. If you're talking to rough sleepers, sometimes I find that they can say things that are a bit sort of rude or they'll say things like, ah, do you have any more money? Can I have some more money? You know, or... Or they'll just sort of, I don't know, ignore you. or, or and, and, you, and I think, oh, <laughs> you know. But I, I just have to remember, we're exactly the same in, in God's eyes. If you're on the exposure walk um, to the sex industry with the pink, pink cross ministry, before you become judgmental of the prostitutes, before you become judgmental of the pimps or of the, the men who go to the brothels, remind yourself that you are on the same level with God and you're all in need needing of forgiveness and you all have access to salvation by faith in Jesus through God's grace. So this is what Peter's point is here. Gentiles and Jews, the same. Then Paul and Barnabas got up and once again everyone wanted to listen. They gave testimony to the amazing stories of what had happened on the missionary journey. They talked about uh, the most unlikely Gentiles coming to faith and signs and wonders that God performed. And then finally, James stands up. He brought the council to a kind of a, a resolution. He tied all the threads together. This was James, the brother of Jesus. What he said would be accepted by the wider church community. In some of the writings that are not out from the Bible, but out, outside of the Bible from this period, it, it talks about how much respect James had. He was seen as a self-disciplined Christian and committed to his faith. He regularly participated in the temple in terms of prayer, prayed for people in their city. And like many of the apostles, he was uh, executed in AD 62. So the church obviously respected him so much. And this is part of leadership and eldership in the church, is that partly it's earned through a person's character, not just through their appointment. And not just who they're related to, even with James, he was respected more more for who he was than than because he was the brother of Jesus. So James James starts talking, and he and he points straight to Peter's testimony, and he uses the rarer Hebrew form of Peter's name. Uh, only mentioned twice in the New Testament, seventy five times the Greek forms used. These two times he uses a Hebrew to, the Hebrew form is used. And this is because James is showing how he really is culturally sensitive to the Jewish Christians in the room. And he's saying, you can trust me, I'm not going to rip you off, you know, if you're from the Pharisee party. I'm I'm listening to you, I'm on your your team. So he's being culturally sensitive. My my grandparents, um, who had many overseas students live with them over 25 years from Malaysia, Singapore and Hong Kong and Japan, they always insisted on using the person's actual name, their, their, their Chinese name or their Japanese name, as opposed to using their anglicised name, because they are motivated by the desire to make a person feel respected and at home. And that's what James is kind of doing here. It's a good principle when you're crossing the aisle. Cross the aisle on the other person's terms. Make them feel comfortable. 
James finally turns to the Bible as his authority and he opens it up to Amos chapter 9, verse 11 to 12. And James says, The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. James is saying, what Amos talks about here is happening in our midst when Gentiles become Christians. God is rebuilding David's house, his fallen tent, and he's doing it in a strange way, but in a way that Amos foresaw by the conversion of the nations, by the conversion of the Gentiles. This was promised, and it's now taking effect. James says that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, because James is wise and empowered by the Holy Spirit to lead, he lays out some boundaries to the Gentile converts. And he lists four things they must do. It's not so much a prerequisite salvation at all. It's about making sure you don't cause further division in the church. He says, we should write to them telling them to, this is verse 20, Abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. James recognised the concerns of the Jewish Christians and he wanted to pursue unity in the church. He wanted to make it so that Jewish converts and Gentile converts could sit down and eat a meal together and have a good conscience he didn't want the Gentile converts to be a stumbling block to the Jews, Jewish Christians. So the, the food restrictions that James makes are specific for that context, for those kinds of foods which are particularly offensive to Jews. The flesh of animals which had been offered to sacrifice, in sacrifice to pagan idols and from which the blood hadn't been drained and they were to conform to the Jewish marriage laws. These prohibitions are mentioned three times in Acts um, but apart from the prohibition on sexual immorality, the others do not appear in Paul's letters. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul, he's more relaxed about the food laws, food, food offered to idols. He, uh, he wrote that letter about six years after this incident. So the point is these pro prohibitions aren't laws for us, these food laws. They're just uh, for the context, for the sake of unity. And with that, using the wisdom of the apostles and the elders, using experience of signs and wonders, and using scripture, James draws all the threads together, and he forms a conclusion. What do we do about this mess? And he says, Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to be saved and join the church. In fact, it is God's plan all along for them to be able to be saved by faith in Jesus through, through grace, through the grace of God. It's been the plan all along. But these Gentiles should show sensitivity to their Jewish brothers and sisters and conduct themselves in a way that does not cause them to stumble. So that's an amazing example there of, of the church at work. And I have three applications that come out of this um, short application for what we can do and put into practice. And the first application is this. Be inclusive. Now this is the easiest first one and it's worth pointing out. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to be inclusive. They're trying to welcome people in. James says, don't make it hard for them to convert. We have to be a church that people will want to join. And when they join, they'll be welcomed. And they can say yes to Jesus if, if they want to. 
As a staff, we often think about this in terms of this Sunday service. Is it a welcoming place for visitors? Is it, you know, is there someone smiling at the door? Is someone, you know, there to talk to people if they're visiting? Is, is the food good? Is the music enjoyable to, to listen to? These things are partly about just making it attractive for people who don't belong to this church and are visiting. And you should do the same thing for any church group you're part of. With your community group, is it a place that somebody could join? If a person is exploring faith and wanting to, to join your community group, could they? How would they go? Every church group, every community group, every play group, every youth group, every ministry in a church has to check themselves and ask that question. Is this a place somebody could join? Or do we have hard boundaries around this meeting? If your group has hard boundaries and nobody not like you would want to join, then you have a problem. So be inclusive. Now, secondly, you have to be faithful and obedient to God as well. That's what we have observed from this passage. To adequately manage the mess, you've got to love people and you've got to love God. This is the greatest commandment. The Jerusalem Council, they didn't just say, come on, man, let's not worry about the Gentiles. Let's just welcome them in. Let's include them. Let's not worry about the requirements of the law. That would be the easiest thing to do, wouldn't it? It's all about love. Let's be inclusive. Let's stop being racist to the Gentiles. Come on, man. They didn't just spout a lame, inclusive philosophy. They sought to be obedient to God. They wanted to be inclusive and obedient at the same time. So they looked at the missionaries' experience, the wisdom of the apostles, the agreement from the elders and the authority of Scripture. Peter looked directly at God for, for guidance. Paul and Barnabas looked at signs and wonders as confirmation of God's will. James turned to the Bible and synthesized all the information together. Then they gave guidelines as well. They had to talk about sexual immorality because some of the Gentiles were coming from contexts where the places where they were living, there were a different sexual ethic. And we see time and time again throughout the New Testament where churches are located in places where there is a different ethic, they're influenced by that ethic. And that goes for us in our church as well. You have to push as you, you push yourself and the leaders have to push the community, the church community, to make sure they don't become disobedient as they include people from other cultures. Love people and love God. Thirdly, be conscious of stumbling blocks. We have to be conscious of what things we might be doing that cause other people um, to stumble. Uh, this is the point that Paul makes in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. He says we should be sensitive to people's consciences. We should be concerned for the weaker brother or sister. We should not put a stumbling block in their way. Our personal convictions for how to conduct ourselves must always be shaped and tempered by the love that we have for other people. Love will make us do things that we don't normally do because we're wanting to serve people. An example of this is... Um, when I've been involved in any kind of ministry event with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, the right thing to do and what's usually done is there's no alcohol involved in the event. It's not because there's a law in the, in the Bible that says Christians can't drink alcohol, but, but it's because in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities uh, and, and, Christian, and then Christian communities, it's, it, it, people do not drink because it's such a problem for, the, for their community. And so... You just don't have alcohol because you don't want to be a stumbling block. 
you have to think about it when you're going out for dinner or when you're putting in your, on your event. You don't want to hold the gospel back through these cultural things that are, are, are a weakness for, for different people. On the other hand, we've got to be flexible. We've got to be pragmatic as well. So there's this really curious thing that happens in this chapter, in chapter 15. Paul is fighting against the idea that you need to be circumcised to be a Christian. But then in the very next chapter, we see this same Paul tell Timothy, if you want to be on the missionary team, you need to get circumcised before you can come on the team. And this is, why is he doing this? This is not about religious legalism. Paul's not saying you need to do it to be saved. He's saying, we're going to try and reach Jewish Christians, uh, Jewish people, and so do it for pragmatic reasons so that you can reach these people. Last week, uh, Beck and I, or the week before, Beck and I got to hear Bishop Rick Thorpe who, from London, who's the Bishop of uh, Church Planning. And he's come out of the Holy Trinity Brompton, Nicky Gumbel Alpha Church. And they're planning hundreds and thousands of churches in, in England now. It's amazing. But they've learned to be pragmatic and to do things they don't normally do to reach people. One of the things they do is they've learned to run... So they're from a kind of a, a skinny jeans kind of church tradition, you know, uh, with uh, drums and electric guitars. But they've learned to do ministry in churches that are more high church with robes and, and all of that sort of thing. And they've learned to do that better than what they normally do in those churches. And the point is they're being pragmatic so that they can reach people and so that they can actually grow churches, something we've got to learn to do. So to conclude, don't be afraid of the mess that is involved in crossing the aisle. If you feel awkward about talking to people who are not like you, because you are afraid of what they might say, or you're afraid of being patronising or accidentally prejudiced, don't let that hold you back. Don't let it hold you back from meeting people. Don't let that be an obstacle or an excuse. Go with the mess. It's okay to be messy. Peter, James and Paul and Barnabas experienced it. So can you. And when we experience the inevitable mess that comes from crossing the aisle, seek to love people and seek to love God in equal measure. Remember that we worship a God who doesn't need us to be perfectly ordered. Uh, he can cope with our mess. He doesn't mind if we make mistakes. He doesn't mind if there's a cultural misunderstanding. He's the God who crossed the aisle into our messy world to love and die for messy people. So my prayer is that you will participate in this festival and choose one or two activities and be humble and vulnerable as you step out into the world. Let's pray for that. Lord God, we pray for our church, our community, and uh, for the mess that we might make, the mess that, mess that we have in our lives currently, and we pray that we can be people that can cope with a bit of mess, to trust you, to love people and to love you, to seek obedience, to not be a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters. Please let us live our lives in love for people. Amen.